church, our Lord said, Why are you persecuting me? So Christ is still on the cross. Behold, I stand at the door of God. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. You're listening to Behold the Man with your host, Joe McCoy. No anxiety at all. No anxiety at all. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. Buenos dias, que tal? Welcome back to Behold the Man. I'm your host, Joe McLean. It is great to be back with you. Last week, we got into the meat of Genesis chapter 3, that faithful moment, or actually it's faithful, not faithful, because it was the opposite of faithful, that faithful moment when man fell from grace, when Adam, through his own cowardice, allowed the bully, the dragon, the great serpent, Leviathan, Nahash, to enter into the garden, which he was commanded to protect and to keep. And he allowed this dragon to bully him into cowardice and to allow uh, Eve to be beguiled, standing there having to to, uh, sit there and negotiate with this intruder all by herself. And so that's where we left off. This week, we will conclude Genesis chapter 3, and as well as the third chapter of A Father Who Keeps His Promises, a great book by Dr. Scott Hahn on covenant theology. This goes through the major covenants, or the seven covenants in sacred scripture, and through salvation history, actually. And I think you're going to find this is an excellent book. It's very well uh, written. It's very easy to read. And that's why we're using it as a basis for a Bible study. Well, this week, as I said, we're going to be getting into the penance portion of Genesis chapter 3. Now we're talking about the suffering that will be incurred by all of humanity as a result to this, this narrative of the fall of man that we talked about last week. Bringing us into the show this uh, this evening was Ed Bolduc, and his song is Word for Word. You can find a link to his site on my site at www.catholichack.com. Well, let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, all glorious and gracious God, we come before you. We praise your holy name. You alone are worthy of praise, dear Father. You alone are so great and so wonderful and all holy and loving pure love, love itself. And out of love, you have taught us a great and deep lesson, the value of suffering. Help us to embrace, dear Father, our suffering, because there is inherent value in it, because your Son, our Lord and God, Jesus Christ, embraced his suffering in the cross and redeemed us 
and sweat drops of blood from his brow onto the earth, and brought forth from his side the church, which you gave us the sacraments through, to give us grace, to give us a way home, back to you. So help us, dear Father, embrace suffering. I pray especially for those suffering through disease and cancer tonight. So many I know recently are dying of cancer. Help them to embrace their suffering, dear Father. Help us who are left here to, to understand this, to deal through the morning, to embrace this. As you say, as St. Paul said, I fill up that which is lacking in the suffering of Christ. Help us, dear Father, to see this suffering in the light of the cross. We pray this grace, and I seek the intercession of the Blessed Mother, that she will not only pray for those nearest and dearest to me who are suffering of cancer right now, but for all those suffering and dying, whether of disease, starvation, what have you. Dear Blessed Lady, the new Eve, please do not fail to intercede on behalf of all those suffering tonight. Whisper their names into the ear of your Son, that they too might have the grace to see their suffering in light of the cross. And if it be the will of the Father, they may, may be healed for the glory and the purpose of God alone. We pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. All right, well, let me set the stage. I would love to read to you the narrative of Genesis chapter 3, starting around verse 8 there, uh, where we see Adam and Eve um, hiding in a bush. What happens? They, they eat the fruit. They realize their eyes are opened, it said, that they are naked and they feel shame for the first time. And so they, they, they sew fig leaves together and then they hear what? They hear God the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they, what? They hide themselves. And then here we see God calling them out. Where are you? Hello? Where'd everybody go? You know, it's like we have to sit here and think, oh, poor God. But he just doesn't really know. He doesn't get it. He, he wasn't around. He just doesn't know what's going on. Poor God. No, no, come on. Of course God knows. I mean, it's like my little kids. You know, when my daughter is trying to steal this just today, she was trying to steal uh, strawberries out of the refrigerator. She was sneaking out of the room and opening up the refrigerator and stealing strawberries and snacking them really quick before she came back to the room. And of course, I knew exactly what she was doing. But because I wanted her to confess, I was trying to coax a confession out of her. I had to quiz her. Mary, what are you doing? Where have you been? What's going on? You know, it's not that I don't know what's going on. It's that I want her to come clean. And this is the exact same thing that's going on here in Genesis chapter 3, where God is asking Adam and Eve to come clean. Of course, he knew exactly what had went down because he tested them. He allowed them to be tested, rather. He put them in the garden. He commanded Adam to keep and protect it. He gives them supernatural grace. He gives them the tree of life, which, which gives him the ability to sustain his immortal life. And yet Adam, through his own cowardice, as we talked about last week, allowed that intruder to come in. He sat there in complete silence in a garden by a tree and allowed Eve to do all the talking. 
And so what do we see here in this confrontation, this, this confession, as I like to point out, this is the, the, the sort of the model of confession here in Genesis chapter three, where God, like the father in this, in the parable of the prodigal son looks, comes and meets them halfway and then sort of coaxes the confession out of him and says, who told you that you were naked? And then what happens? Adam, Adam goes, well, well, it was that, it was that woman, that woman, that you gave me. She gave me the fruit to eat. Do you see the cowardice continuing, the theme of cowardice continuing on here? Adam is still a coward. He's blaming Eve and then therefore God for all of his troubles. Oh, is this woman that you gave? Wait a minute. You gave her to me. It's your fault. You gave her to me. You made her. You gave her to me. Adam is a complete coward here. Again. And what does Eve do? Eve, what does she do? She admits her, her guilt. She says, I was beguiled and I ate the fruit. She doesn't blame Adam for her troubles and she doesn't blame God for her troubles. She simply says, I fell. I made a mistake. And so now that's going from the confessional portion of the narrative into the penance portion. So we already know that God knew exactly what was going on. In fact, the word for uh, walking in the cool of the day, the Hebrew word used there is ko. Now, ko is used in elsewhere, uh, for example, I think in the Psalms, where it describes a very loud, roaring kind of a noise. Not some quiet little twig-snapping little image that we always have in our mind. Again, like last week, we must overcome the stereotypes of Genesis chapter 3 that we have in our mind. Get rid of them. They don't apply. It's not a, an innocent garden snake. It's not, you know, just some uh, Adam and Eve completely ignorant to all the ways of the world. That is not true. God, when he came, he came in all his glory. That's what the co really uh, indicates there. It came in glory, the roaring loud noise. It would have been like a rushing wave coming upon them, which gave him anxiety, Adam and Eve, to hide in a, in a bush. And then God coaxed them out and confronts them and gets them to confess. And then we move into, as I said, that penance portion, where he starts to dole out the price that will have to be paid for the fall, for their mistake, for having committed the sin. And it, this is where we get really into the interesting part. The Lord says in verse chapter and verse 14 of Genesis chapter three, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all cattle and above all wild animals upon your belly, you shall go and dust. You shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. In sweat of your face shall you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, 
very, very significant here. The fact is God doles out suffering to them, suffering to them. Now, we want to talk about here in a minute, is, is that even fair? Should God dole out suffering? Isn't he a merciful and loving God? I mean, are we seeing the wrath of God here or are we seeing the love of God here? You see how subtle the difference might even be? And how our mind immediately thinks, God, you're, you're overreacting here, Father. I mean, hello, it was some fruit. No, 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 no. As we said last week, it's more than that. Much, much more than that. And here, we're going to see how the penance that God doles out, that he gives them, is not only out of love, but furthermore, it brings value to suffering. How sacrifice has great value. Because ultimately, why? It's the value of suffering in the cross that gives us the shot at heaven at all, right? And so let's let's read here a quote from Dr. Hahn on page 72 of A Father Who Keeps His Promises. He says, quote, How did God respond to the temptation and fall? He decreed severe consequences, including increased pain in childbearing, toilsome tilling of the soil, and ultimately death. Okay, but here's the deal. Because they would not sacrifice themselves, sacrifice themselves as far as, let's say, um, the willingness or the willingness to overcome um, being scared. You know, we all are scared. Scared is a natural part of who we are as humans. But sometimes we must overcome our fear to do the right thing. Right? Uh, men who go into battle know exactly what this means. Men who work. Um, for example, uh, tall buildings, they have to overcome their fear of heights to do their job, to feed their families. So we can find all kinds of occasions where men must overcome fear in order to do their job. I can tell you one time where uh, my son, my little son, my oldest son, when he was uh, very small, I think five or six, he had a bat flying around in his room. And I had to overcome my fear of being bitten by a bat to go in and tackle this thing and to uh, get it out of the house. So there's all kinds of examples where we must overcome our fear for the greater good. Adam and Eve refused to overcome their fear, or at least Adam did anyway. He refused to overcome his fear of this intruder. And instead of saving his soul, he saved his flesh and forego his soul. That's the, the key issue here. So, because they refused to sacrifice, the sacrifice will be the remedy for the fall and for the sin. Do you understand that? Because they refused to sacrifice, it will be sacrifice that will be, therefore, the remedy for their sin. Now, in, on Eve's part, she will have pain in childbearing, as well as relationship issues in, in marriage. Because her desire will be for her husband and her husband will be over her, indicating that this wasn't necessarily the relationship prior to this moment. But because of this, now moving forward, we're going to have some tension there in the marriage. Thanks to Adam, we've got lots of tension in marriage. I, for one, can attest to that. And I'm sure if you're married, you can too. Now, so Eve has pain in bringing forth the fruit of the womb bringing forth life into the world, bringing forth children. Adam's pain and suffering comes from tilling the ground, having to bring forth what? The fruit of the earth, to bring forth the harvest. He will work 
hard. The sweat will drop from his brow onto the earth. His back will ache because he'll have to work so hard to bring forth this, this food that he'll, he will have to have in order to sustain life. See, before this, he had all the, the fruit of the trees in the garden that brought forth life and all of the good fruit that he could have eaten at his leisure. He didn't have to work hard. His sweat wasn't dropping from his head onto the earth. But now he will, in pain and in suffering, have to bring forth the fruit of the earth, as Eve brings forth the fruit of the womb, both in pain and in suffering. Quote, uh, also on the bottom of page 73, Scott Hahn says, quote, Once the nature of Adam's sin is understood to be his refusal to suffer out of love for his father and bride, Three conclusions logically follow. First, the divine curse of suffering imposed on Adam and Eve was perfectly reasonable. Second, their humble acceptance acceptance of that punitive suffering would be remedial. Third, Christ bearing, Christ's bearing of this curse and his own sacrificial suffering on the cross would prove to be redemptive. All right. So, again, I hope you can see the power of suffering, that it is very... Uh, when we embrace suffering and we, we, we unify that to the cross of Christ, we bring an inherent dignity to suffering. And so there's true purpose in it. Not like the ways of the world who tell us that suffering is always bad and wrong. We don't want anything to do with it. Instead, we want always the good parts of life. That God only intends us to be happy. You know, he wants us to have the rich car, the rich houses and the fancy cars and the fine clothes. No. No, that leads us away to the gospel. We need to run towards it. And to do that, we do what? As Christ commands us to do, we pick up our cross and we march on Calvary. And so we embrace suffering along with, uh, with our Lord and Savior. All right, the snake also had to do some suffering himself. He lost his appendages. Now, here's an interesting uh, little tidbit. I have mentioned before on this show about the Targums. Now, the Targums, very quickly, are an oral tradition of a translation from the Hebrew in the synagogue, reading of the scrolls in Hebrew, into Aramaic, because most of the people couldn't understand Hebrew because they had been, um, they had been all scattered wide. They weren't in Palestine. They'd been scattered to Babylon and Egypt and Greece and Rome. And so most of these folks lost their Hebrew language. They spoke Aramaic, the, the, the Palestinian there at the time of Christ and before the time of Christ. So there had to be a lot of translating going on in the synagogue on Saturdays when they read the scrolls in Hebrew. There'd be an interpreter there interpreting into Aramaic so folks could hear what was being read. Now, over time, these translations were re recorded and they're called the Targums. And you can actually Google the Targums and you can read these for yourself. They're quite fascinating because they, they contain details that you can't get in your, in your scripture, in your version of the Old Testament. And one of those details is about this snake in Genesis chapter 3. It actually tells us that the snake walked into the garden and that his legs were removed and he crawled and slithered out. It's actually a very literal rendering of the verse, which is quite fascinating in my opinion. And there's another tidbit that I'm going to share with you here in a moment. But again, the snake, as being the most uh, sly of all the creatures, now has to pay, uh, live a, a life of pain and suffering too, without its appendages. You know, Now it eats dust all the days of its life. And so pain and suffering is the cure to the fall of mankind. Because they would not sacrifice... 
they therefore are given the, the, the remedy of sacrifice. Now, this theme will come up again as we get into other covenants down the road here in the coming weeks and months. So I'll bring it up again later, but this is a very critical point, and I want you to remember it. Now, God, was he loving or was he wrathful? This is a very good point. I suggest to you, he is loving, not wrathful. I'm going to read to you a, a little quote again here from a father who keeps his promises, page 74, quote, God's wrath is not the opposite of his love, merely the flip side. The father is not torn between love and wrath. God is love. But, but that love is a consuming fire, which never goes out. And that's Hebrews 12, 29. God is love is found in 1 John 4, 8. God is love. You can't say God is love today and tomorrow God is wrath. No, but like a parent who disciplines their children, God sometimes has to be disciplinarian. He has to be somewhat harsh on occasions, out of love, because we must correct our wayward children. Now, you and I will see things like, you know, wars and pestilences and natural disasters and death and disease. We see those through very human eyes, through fallen eyes, through eyes with concupiscence, meaning we have a nature that tends towards sin. We see everything through these fallen eyes. And so we fail to understand that when we see these things, we think of wrath. We think of, we think of anger. We think of, you know, just suffering in the most negative way. But you see, when God calls us to be like him, Matthew 5, 48, to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect, he must purify us. He must, he must take us and refine us through the fire of love so that we can be perfect. And it is through the suffering that we embrace that we become more perfect like our father. And that's why in 1 Corinthians, St. Paul actually talks about being purged, being purified through fire. That although the man suffers loss, he himself will be saved, as St. Paul says. So we must embrace the cross to truly understand what Christ came to do, what happened here in the garden, and how we must live our own lives. Now, easier said than done, I grant that. But that is the truth. That is really what's going on here. They didn't suffer. And so now they're given the prescription to suffer. God is now going to help them and actually sort of, you know, okay, fine. You couldn't do it on your own. Well, now I'm going to help you do it for you by forcing you to, you know, this is now going to be the deal from now on. And so what happens? They're kicked out of the garden. God says, oh, well, wait a minute. They're, they're living in their sin now. They can't eat from the tree of life because they will live for eternity in sin. No, we must we must remove them. He removes them, ejects them out of the Garden of Eden, places there a, a, an angel with a fiery sword to protect the way, to block the way, lest they go and eat from the tree of life and live and die in their sin. All right? So you see, the sin, the garden, the tree of life is now blocked by an angel with a sword. A very important point that we're going to come back to here in a moment. But I want to focus now backing up just a few paces on the Proto-Evangelium, or what we call the first gospel. There in the Garden of Eden, as they first were confronted by our Lord, and God coaxed that confession out of them, what happens? Um, our Lord, He starts to proclaim how He will fix all of this, how in the future He will bring about the remedy to all of this. That's what we call the Proto-Evangelium, and it's found in Genesis chapter 13. I'll just back up to verse 14 there. 
the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all cattle and above all wild animals. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, some very important points here. Number one, God is speaking to the serpent. Number two, he proclaims that in the future, that he will bring about the fix to all of this through the seed of a woman. And through that seed, he will crush the head of the serpent, and the serpent will always be nipping at the heel. The serpent will never win. The serpent will lose with its head being crushed through the seed of the woman. This is the first gospel, the proto-evangelium, the good news that is to come. And here's the cool part. All throughout salvation history in the Old Testament, we're going to find little bits and pieces, glimmers relating back to this one verse. People, specific characters in the Old Testament through salvation history are going to come up as crushing the head of evil people. Specific references to this verse. These are little glimmers that God is still on his path, leading us to that day, that faithful day, when the seed of the woman will come and ultimately, for the last time, crush the head of the serpent, that dragon that we are told of in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. That is the day. Christ is the fulfillment of this. But so is our blessed mother. The woman is Mary, and her seed, Jesus Christ, her son, is the ultimate fulfillment of this. Jesus is the last Adam, and Mary is the last or the new Eve, as the fathers like to refer to her as. So, again, enmity. Jesus says here, or the Lord says here, that he will put enmity between the snake and the seed of the woman. And the woman enmity between the snake and the woman. That's what we see in, Re- in Revelation chapter 12. The, the dragon chasing the woman, wanting to consume her, to catch up to her, to take her. And it never happens. He can never do it. She is protected. She is flown away and protected from, from this dragon. There is enmity between her and the serpent, the devil himself. And if there is enmity between our blessed mother, Mary, and sin, which is Satan, She can have no sin upon herself. Why? Not because of her own will, not because of her own doing, or anything she could have ever done on her own. No, because God commanded it so, saving her ahead of of schedule by the grace of the cross. You see, to God there is no time. So if he chooses that by the grace of the cross, before her son is even born, that she will be saved from sin, then so be it. It shall be done. Very important point, the enmity. It refers to our blessed mothers being not only conceived without sin, saved from the very stain of sin upon her soul at her conception, but also the fact that she lives her entire human life free from personal sin. This is a fundamental teaching of the church, and it is a very important point that we can reference here in the very beginning of the book of the Bible, and the, uh, the Bible, here in Genesis chapter 3. Enmity, crushing the head, which we talked about, removal of the legs, which we have also talked about of the snake. 
Now, I, I'm running short on time, so I've got to hurry up. Some great typological points, and I want to uh, just bring out a few here. And you need to read a paragraph, actually on page 75, uh, Scott Hahn goes into this typology, but I'm just going to very briefly go over a few points here that I want you to look further into. The shame and the nakedness. They hid in a bush because they were naked in shame. Well, God, out of his own mercy, brings them clothes. He makes clothes out of animal skin. You can find that in Genesis 3.21. But our Lord, when he was confronted in a garden by the cohort there, did he hide? No, he went up and met them. And he says, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth, they say. He says, what? I am. I am he. Come get me. He does not hide like Adam and Eve. Okay. Uh, like Unlike Adam and Eve, Jesus doesn't blame others. Again, he says, I am he when confronted not only by the cohort, but by uh, Caiaphas, the high priest. Are you the son of the most high? Are you the Messiah? Jesus says, what? I am he, ego e me. Very, very important. He, Jesus takes on the thorn of crowns. Adam was cast into the thorns and the thistles. Jesus takes on the thorns. Adam was stripped naked out of shame. Jesus Christ was stripped naked out of love of suffering for you and me. Adam and Eve were stripped of the purple robe in which they were created, as the Targums point out. But in the Gospels, we're told that Jesus was wrapped in a purple robe, crowned with thorns, and and then got on his and people got on their knees and mocked him like a king because he was a king. Can you? see that that Jesus was taking all of the pointers, all of the major uh, things going on, the themes going on in Genesis 3, and taking them on to himself and showing us all that he has come as the last Adam to undo that which Adam did, as St. Paul tells us, that through death from the last Adam, that we will have life, life from the last Adam. <laughs> I said all that wrong, but you know what? Hey, what are you going to do when you're trying to do a live show? Adam brought death. Jesus Christ brought life. There you go. That's the bottom line. So much information, not nearly enough time to share it all with you. I hope you've enjoyed the show, and I hope to see you next week. Until then, stop by the website, www.catholichack.com, for more information. Well, I'm praying for you, so please pray for me. May God richly bless you. From the Catholic Underground. <laughs>